The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we do encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. And then we will be praying for Ben and Leslie concerning those requests that they just mentioned after we read this text. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Pray together. O oh God, O oh Lord, the, the author and giver of this text, we, we plead with you. We are weak people in need of great power at work among us that we might receive this text, the second pass here at the Beatitudes with, with humility, but also with great joy as we learn and grow. And Spirit, may you work accordingly, those of us who are tired, those of us who are distracted, those of us who are bored, whatever the case may be, would you lift our heads and lift our spirits and give us supernatural attentiveness. Lord, we do praise you. Lord, I don't even, I have hardly the words to say to, to thank you for the blessing that it has been to have been in Leslie as a part of our church family for so many years. You didn't have to do that, but you did. And we are grateful for it. We are better for it. And Lord, even though we are sad that they have left, uh, we're thankful that they were here, and we're thankful that they're in the D.C. area blessing new people, blessing an entirely different community. We thank you for their jobs that you've given them. We thank you for their new, new church community. And, and we do pray for this tension that they were just talking about. Show them what it looks like to continue to, to treasure the relationships that they have here and the time that they had here while fully embracing a new church family. Thank you that at the end of the day, that church and, and our church were part of the same family, doing the same kinds of work. I pray that this weekend has been hopefully encouraging for them in the midst of some of the difficulty of a transition, but it's been a, it's been a real joy. And, and thank you that, that you've brought so many different alumni here to, to plan our worship team and just to be here and to enjoy relationships, and to have conversation, and, and to catch up. We love you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
when people challenge Christianity, when they challenge Christianity, one of the primary challenges that I hear these days, and you've probably heard it as well, is something along the lines of Christians are hypocrites. Christians are hypocrites. You know, maybe I'm interested in Jesus, but, but Christians are hypocrites. You say one thing, but you do another thing. Your actions don't match your values. You're in bed with politics. You're corrupted by political power, etc., etc. I mean, shoot, for, for some people, the word evangelical is essentially a synonym for hypocrites, which is a bit of a problem for City Church, given that we're part of a denomination commonly referred to with the acronym EFCA, which stands for the Excellent Free Church of America. Now, this, this hypocrisy charge, it's fascinating. There's certainly some truth to it. No Christian lives in perfect alignment with their stated convictions, and some of the misalignment, past and present, is particularly awful and tragic. You've seen the headlines about abuse and manipulative leadership and so forth. You might be familiar with Brennan Manning's famous lament that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. However, when professing Christians live hypocritically, they're not really representing true Christianity. That's what's complicated about all of this. The foundational issue in those cases is that their stated beliefs aren't functionally their real beliefs. And so they're living in step with their real beliefs, which at that point have nothing to do with true Christian belief and practice and actually tend to obscure the nature of true Christian belief in practice. And here's another thing. There are plenty of Christians out there living faithfully, though never perfectly. But there are plenty of Christians out there living rather faithfully. You just might not hear about them because they're living faithfully. Which generally means, and we're going to see this as we make our way through the text this morning, which generally means laboring in relative obscurity, as they are busy prioritizing the interests of other people. You might not hear about them, but they're out there. And I happen to believe, although of course I'm a very biased pastor, I happen to believe that that describes a whole lot of you. I say all of this because we're dealing with a passage this morning that helps us understand what we might call the profile of a true disciple of Jesus, a true citizen of God's kingdom. And my prayer is that those of you who are here this morning, who are, who are disillusioned by, you know, all of the hypocrisy, might actually see the beauty of true Christianity being truly lived, that, that the word of God might cut through the, the murkiness and give you some fresh insight. And my prayer is that those of you who are laboring in obscurity and even getting some blowback, perhaps, for your faithfulness, 
might be encouraged, might be greatly encouraged in the Lord this morning and continue persevering in your faithfulness. There's, there's so much noise in the system these days. I know some of you are very discouraged, so may God's word cut through that noise and cut through that discouragement and give you joy and peace. That's my prayer. Two reflections this morning as we take the second pass at the Beatitudes. You notice I just read the same passage I read last week because we're taking a, a second look at it. And these are, of course, Jesus' opening words in the Sermon on the Mount. Two reflections this morning as we take a second pass at the Beatitudes. Number one, we're going to talk about the posture of kingdom people. And then number two, the promise, or the promises. Two ways of looking at it for kingdom people. The posture of kingdom people, and then the promises for kingdom people. So let's start with that first reflection, the posture of kingdom people. Last week, focusing mainly on verses 1 through 5, we saw that the Sermon on the Mount helps us understand how to live well or to flourish. That's the best sense of that word, blessed. It understands how, help us understand how to live well or, or to flourish in this world while being realistic about our experiences of difficult circumstances and suffering. We also saw that the kingdom values and the ethics that are contained in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to spend the next few months talking about make sense specifically within the grand story of redemption that frames the kingdom's existence and purpose and within a kingdom in which the citizens are experiencing God's transformational power. That's what we talked about last week. So living well, we might say, has to do with entrusting ourselves to the Lord and living faithfully according to his way of doing things within the context of the redemptive story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And by the way, we find ourselves right now at a point in this story that is just chock full of tension. If you like narrative tension, you're just you're going to love where we're at right now. Jesus already inaugurated the kingdom of heaven when he broke into this world and took on human flesh, but he will fully consummate that kingdom only when he returns in glory at his second coming and leads his people into a new and perfect heaven and earth. So while it it is a blessed thing to turn from our sin and put our hope in Jesus. Kingdom citizens will continue to have trouble in this world, Jesus' words, since we are living in an already but not yet kingdom still affected by the presence of sin, even though Jesus has saved us from our sin. What does this already but not yet living look like? Check out verses 6 through 8. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We might summarize these statements from Jesus by saying, Living well are those who know the story and know their place in the story. Flourishing are those who understand the way in which 
sin has upended our relationship with God and our relationships with one another and the entire created order and, and yearn for God to set all of that right once again. Flourishing are those who live like they're yearning and hoping for that kind of restoration and desire to be a part of God's redemptive and restorative work. Hungering and, and thirsting for righteousness, verse 6, entails this holy discontentment with the way things are in this world socially and morally, with, with mothers dying in childbirth, with, with famines ravaging entire nations and even continents, with people worshiping false gods and digging spiritual cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. So living well are those who, who yearn with, with all of their being for, for God's just standards and, and reign to be established everywhere in all areas of life and for all people in all of the earth to walk with God in obedience. It's, it's worth noting here that Jesus may have a special eye toward those who are literally hungry and thirsty in a state that is grievous in the Lord's eyes. And there is this pattern in the book of Matthew in which those who are on the margins tend to yearn more than others for God to set things right in this world and to be a part of his kingdom because they can see the problems in the world with more clarity than others. Having a lot of things, although not necessarily sinful, often does tend to get in the way of seeing just how not right things really are in this world and with ourselves. And those yearning for righteousness will will live like it, mercifully investing, verse 7, in other people spiritually, physically, and emotionally with generous hearts. And in so doing, display God's mercy and compassion to the world through their actions. Merciful people will zealously pursue morally virtuous, set apart, or we might say, holy lives. Merciful people will be zealous for evangelism and zealous for missions, Merciful people will zealously counteract oppression and injustice wherever we see it, even at great cost to ourselves. Goodness, does, does the body of Christ these days, especially in the West, want to pull all of these kinds of things apart or, or maybe elevate one of them at the expense of the other? But those who are living well, who are living mercifully, will care about the whole picture, the whole thing. And then in verse 8, Jesus spotlights the zeal for moral purity that we just mentioned, emphasizing that disciples experiencing transformation as citizens of God's kingdom will live lives of obedience characterized by internal heart change. This is a moral purity and a kind of moral living that, that comes from something. It, it comes from a transformed heart and from new affections, not from cultural customs, from family pressure, from, from self-interest, none of that. When you follow Jesus, he changes your heart, setting up the furniture for morally pure and obedient living, characterized by devotion to the Lord and sacrificially prioritizing the interests of other people. All of this that we've just been talking about, this is Christian living if you're wondering. 
This is how true disciples of Jesus are to live. And as they do, they are flourishing and living wisely, even when their earthly circumstances are difficult. Even when, if you'll believe this, verse 10, they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Even when, verse 11, others revile you and and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You might object and say, well, okay, fine, but I'm a peacemaker. See the the attitude that we we skipped there in verse 9. I'm a peacemaker. I'm I'm devoting my life to to making this world more like God intended it to be, to bringing his, his shalom into the marketplace and the schools in the neighborhoods, everywhere. Surely I'll be respected and appreciated and win fancy awards. Perhaps you will sometimes. And if you do, praise God. But at other times, Jesus says that you can expect to be reviled and persecuted for others to utter all kinds of evil against you on Jesus' account. Church, remember that there are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 6, that are singularly focused on countering light with darkness. And even though the light ultimately wins, that's the really good news, they're going to make themselves known in the world in the meantime. And here's the thing, if you will, for a minute. The reviling won't always come from the people you'd most readily identify as the bad guys. In fact, the more polarized and tribal professing Christians become, especially here in the West, as we've been seeing, the more likely it is that someone who appears to be from your own spiritual house might revile you for going outside the party line. I mean, these days, if you're passionate about evangelism and you also want to have honest conversations about about race and racism, probably someone's going to get mad at you. Being holistic in a partisan world is going to earn you some critics. But it's faithful and it honors the Lord. According to Jesus, this is the posture. Everything we've been talking about. This is the posture of kingdom people. This is the profile. They hunger and they thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They are pure in heart. They're peacemakers. And, in all likelihood, they're reviled. Congratulations. If you are sitting here this morning, and I know some of you will fit this bill, if you're sitting here this morning, you're disillusioned with Christianity because of the hypocrisy, and honestly, you're just kind of done with it all. Listen, I hear you. With all my heart, I want to say, I hear you, especially those of you who have personally experienced harm at the expense of those who profess Christ. I hear you. But might it be the case that you're disillusioned with with something that doesn't have much to do with true Christianity? Something that, that didn't look anything like the posture we've just been discussing. Be done with the phonies. That's fine with me. Yeah, be disillusioned with them. Be done with the folks whose whose Christianity seems like nothing more than a resource for personal advancement. 
Be done with the folks whose Christianity seems mainly like a tool for political gain. Be done with folks who are endlessly self-promotional and self-concerned. You can be done with all of that, and amen. And then, be intrigued, be enthralled by the real thing. Be done with that, and then just be, be enthralled with the real thing. Imagine God working in you so powerfully that by his grace you become more, more merciful and more compassionate, more of a peacemaker. Imagine that. And then imagine the same thing happening to countless people around you as, as God pours out his spirit in a, in a special revivalistic kind of way. Can you imagine how, how beautiful that would be, how, how that would transform the city if everyone became more merciful and compassionate and, and hungry for righteousness? If there were more peacemakers in the area. I get choked up just thinking about this, especially given all the, the fraughtness that we're dealing with these days. Isn't this, this kingdom posture compelling? Isn't it beautiful? Especially when we imagine it taking over our neighborhoods and taking over our, our workplaces and taking over our cities. It seems like Jesus knew what he was talking about. <coughs> Chipper, this is all fine and well. But does this kingdom posture really exist in the real world? Sounds nice, but does it actually exist? Are there, we might say, any real Christians out there? Because I know a lot of phonies. All I know is that there are so, so many faithful followers of Jesus. Now, hopefully I'm putting this right. All I know is that there are so, so many faithful followers of Jesus, as far as I see it, in this church family, in the city church family. None of them are perfect, let me tell you. But I see so much mercy and compassion and peacemaking. I see so much zeal for God to make things right in the world. And if this describes you, please, by the grace of God, keep going. Keep persevering in the Lord. None of what you're doing is glamorous. And don't be surprised if you get reviled from time to time. But God is so glorified by your faithfulness. And he's, he's pleased with you. Know that this morning, despite the reception you might receive from your family, from your co-workers, from the world. All I, know that, all I know is that there are so many City Church alumni, some of course of, are with us this morning doing the same faithful things in new cities and in new church communities. All I know is that there are so many examples of this around the world, especially in places like the Global South where Christianity is ex expanding far more quickly than it is over here. All I know is that there are so many examples of this in, in church history. You just might not know about these examples because these people are being faithful, with, which often means they're flying underneath the radar rather than, than raising their own profiles. But I'll also say this, just because they're flying under the radar doesn't mean they're not doing amazing things for the kingdom of God. A couple of weeks ago, a guy by the code name 
of Brother Andrew passed away at the age of 94. Christianity Today <clears throat> printed a really powerful obituary that I would encourage you to read. Brother Andrew spent a large part of his life literally flying under the radar. That is, if you're comfortable with me defining flying as slipping past border agents of communist countries with Bibles hidden in his blue Volkswagen Beetle. During the 1960s, when the race to the moon was dominating the headlines, there was a popular Dutch joke, Brother Andrew was Dutch, that went, what will the Russians find if they arrive first at the moon? Brother Andrew with a load of Bibles. And by the way, before the, the Bible smuggling ministry began, he, that is Brother Andrew, he hid in ditches at the age of 12 when Germany occupied the Netherlands during World War II to avoid being pressed into service by the Nazis. And then during a terrible famine in the Netherlands in 1944, he ate tulip bulbs to stay alive. And then, after all of that, he was involved in some terrifyingly awful atrocities with the Dutch military in Indonesia. And then he got shot in the ankle, and while he was recovering, he started reading a Bible that his mother gave him. And then he became a Christian because he realized there was no hope in the world aside from the hope offered to us in Christ Jesus. And then eventually, the Bible sent him to spread that hope into places where government forces were trying to keep it from their people. And his personal ministry, by the way, lives on today in a an institution known as Open Doors, if you've ever heard of it. And again, I would encourage you to read this obituary to learn a lot more. Some of you have probably heard of Brother Andrew. Most of you haven't. Why? Because he was faithfully doing his thing instead of tooting his own horn or throwing celebrations for himself like I just saw a well-known prosperity preacher doing the other day. Consider Brother Andrew smuggling Bibles into communist countries, and then that prosperity teacher having a celebration for themselves. And you know what? Even fewer of you have heard about Brother Andrew's mother because she was faithfully doing her thing, which included giving her son a Bible. And you know, she didn't get an obituary in Christianity today. These kinds of folks are out there, these, these Brother Andrews, these, these mothers of Brother Andrews. And according to Jesus, they're living well, they're flourishing, even when they're persecuted and reviled. Be done with the phonies. But this, this kind of flourishing that Jesus is talking, this, this has taste, this has, has texture to it, doesn't it? There's something about it. Perhaps think twice before you throw the baby out with the bathwater. But do know, if you do decide to follow Jesus, or if you decide to continue on following Jesus <coughs> instead of abandoning ship, things will not be easy. Your life might look a lot like the life of the guy given this, uh, this grand sermon 
a life filled with both beauty and trial. Although, of course, the reviling that Jesus eventually dealt with surely tops anything that we will encounter. Before we end, though, I want to circle back to <coughs> a word of encouragement I gave just a few moments ago to those of you who are hungering and, and thirsting for righteousness. Those of you who are, who are glorifying God and pleasing in His sight. Now, I'm circling back because there's more to this story, which brings us to our second reflection, the promises for kingdom people. We talked about the posture of kingdom people, what it looks like to live well in this world according to Jesus. But what about the promises for kingdom people? Why deal with the persecution? Why, why deal with the reviling? Why deal with the suffering? Why not just take matters into your own hands and do what's comfortable and, and most enjoyable to you? Let's look at verses 6 through 12 once again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Greek preposition commonly translated for in the this this for they and for theirs cadence is is more helpfully translated because so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they shall be satisfied and so on and so forth and this is such an important clarification you can probably see this seeing as how this this for translation is is fairly vague because we are just not dealing with the meritocracy here. We're not earning benefits from God by living righteously and mercifully. Instead, we are living well when we're yearning for righteousness because we know that our virtuous living and our zeal for God's just standards will eventually give way to God's kingdom fully consummated in the new heaven and earth. And as Jesus puts it, when we get there, church, we are going to be satisfied beyond measure. We're living well when we're living mercifully, even when it's inconvenient, even when it costs us a whole lot, even when we're forgiving other people for grievous wrongs. Because, here's a promise, as Jesus puts it, we're the blessed beneficiaries of God's mercy, which for kingdom citizens happens to be an infinite river. You might show a lot of mercy in this life. But you will never show more mercy than God shows you. Mercy that ultimately brings us into the courts of God forever. Courts so good. Get this, Psalm 84. It's actually better to spend one day in those courts than a thousand elsewhere. We're living well when we're living morally pure lives even one that puts, that puts us totally at odds with cultural norms because morally pure people are people being changed by Jesus and therefore closely abiding with him now. And one day we will see the Lord 
and all of his radiant splendor when we're living in the new and eternal city that has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Revelation 21. We're living well as we seek peace, even when we're seeking peace in a cultural moment that frankly seems to value discord for the sake of gaining power and influence and status. Even in in seasons when our attempts to bring God's shalom into this world appear to be going nowhere, we're still living well because we know that we are and will be called sons of God. We're, We're children of the Most High. And finally, we're living well when we're persecuted for this kingdom posture, for this kingdom posture we've been talking about. Because we're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, church. Because we're part of a kingdom that cannot be destroyed by the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those forces will try to counter the light with darkness, but they will not ultimately succeed. They will not win. And Jesus expands on this with this. Don't you love bonuses? You get a bonus beatitude. It's fantastic. Here in verses 11 and 12. He didn't have to do it, but he did it. He expands on this with a bonus beatitude here in verses 11 and 12, giving us both an expanded understanding of what the persecution might entail, plus perhaps the most shocking statement and a passage that is just full of shocking statements. Rejoice and be glad in the midst of the suffering and reviling. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They, essentially opponents of God's kingdom, reviled the prophets. They reviled Jesus, and we should expect to be reviled as well when we live faithfully as kingdom citizens and emissaries. And we rejoice, and we are, we are glad when this happens? Yes. Because of 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24, two of my favorite verses in the Bible. When he, that is Jesus, was reviled, check this out, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus was revived. And he he suffered to the point of death on the tree, death on the cross, to bear in his own body the sins of those who entrust themselves to him. So yes, even when kingdom people are revived, we rejoice with gladness because Jesus, the reviled one, has redeemed us and is restoring all things. That's why we rejoice. That's why we are glad, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of reviling. And when the people of God gain the, the new city, the new city, the, the glorious meeting of the new heaven and earth, when we gain that, our reward in heaven will be so great. It will be so, it will, it will be so magnificent, starting with eternal enjoyment of the very presence of the Lord Almighty of Jesus Christ himself, 
the guy responsible for the fact that you don't need a lamp in the new city because his radiance is so spectacular. Last week we said that kingdom values are upside down. And this, this has got to be the preeminent example, right? Rejoicing in the midst of persecution and reviling. Doesn't make sense without the kingdom story. It's as upside down as you can possibly get. Assuming the reviling is on account of our faithfulness, of entrusting ourselves to the Lord. If we're being reviled for being arrogant, hypocritical jerks, that's on us. Sorry. If we're being, I don't know, unnecessarily weird, that's on us. I saw a shirt the other day that, that said, let's see if I can do this right, it said YOLO, and then it had a picture of Jesus with sunglasses on, and then below that it said JKBRB. If you get reviled for that, that might be on you. Google it if you haven't heard about those phrases before. But if we're being reviled on account of entrusting ourselves to the Lord, if that's why we're being reviled, if we're being reviled because we're living mercifully and compassionately, which means we will be other in this world. If you're looking to fit in 1,000% with the ways of the world, you can forget about that. In some sense, we will always be a little bit weird. But may the Lord give you weirdness that has to do with showing compassion and mercy and hungering for righteousness. And then when you're reviled accordingly, with rejoice and be glad. Because our reward is great. Speaking of being other in this world, the Lord Jesus gave.